Hello, car fanatics in Irvine, Orange County, California, the United States of America, and around the world. It is time for the most famous words in motorsport. Start your Start up when you're ready. Today is Tuesday, January 10th, 2017. I'll be with you from 4.30 to 5 every Tuesday from now through the end of the winter quarter in March, which will be around 10 shows. My name is Noah Stein, and I am so excited to bring this show to life. A little about me. I'm a freshman mechanical engineering student at the University of California, Irvine, and I'm currently aspiring to work with cars and motorsport, especially at the racetrack and the technical side of things. But I've always admired the motorsport I've always admired the motorsport journalists who write about cars and races in newspapers or talk about them on radio and TV shows. So by studying engineering and by hosting this show, I'm learning about both of my favorite careers in motorsport, other than driving, of course. I've been a fan of motorsport for almost 10 years now, and I've been to more than a dozen race weekends in my life. Over the years, I've heard a phrase, a characterization, that I think describes me best. I'm a student of the sport. I've been reading and listening intently for years, and I hope you'll follow me on my path of learning about this passion these next few months. I'll be splitting, my t I'll be splitting the time I have this quarter roughly in half between local coverage and worldwide coverage to fulfill KUCI's mission of being different than other shows you've heard before. Today, we're focusing on some of the biggest motorsport news this weekend, as race fans wait patiently for the 2017 season. In the Formula One World Championship, we're following all the teams, officially known as constructors, as they announce the dates they will unveil their newest engineering marvels. One constructor, however, may not even have cars to race. The Manor Racing Team is entering bankruptcy proceedings. Now I welcome my friend and fellow mechanical engineering student, Tristan Cortez, F1 analyst for Speedway Sounds. Hi, Tristan. How are you doing? Doing great, Noah. Um, pleasure to be on the show. First of all, I want to say Happy New Year to you, and Happy New Year to all the listeners joining us today for this premiere. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be on, on this show today. Thank you very much. Tristan, in this biggest prize-paying championship in the world, how did the Manor team run out of money? That's a great question, though. I mean, when you talk about Formula One, there's an immense amount of money that comes in every year. I mean, it's the pinnacle of motorsport. Um, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, but first off, before we talk about Manor, let's talk about how the money in F1 circulates and how it goes around because it's quite a, an interesting dynamic and, you know, something that a lot of people don't really know much about. So how much money are we talking about here? Um, well, F1's annual revenue is roughly a little bit over a, mil a billion dollars, so $1.1 billion per year. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot of cash. <laughs> and that's in pounds, not dollars. $1.1 billion pounds. Yeah. All right. Um, so... Um, I found this article on BBC.com called Formula One, where where does all the money go? Written by Andrew Benson, the chief one, the chief F1 writer there. And in the article, it says that of F1's annual revenue, 63% goes to the teams. 
um, with the rest going to boost the profits of the commercial rights holders. And that consists of the parent company of F1, CVC Capital Partners, um, banks, uh, and, and other investment com- companies. So um, the team's incomes are supplied mainly through two means, uh, the prize money from the commercial rights holders and their own sponsorship deals. Um, and the contracts and how much money is received is confidential for each team, and each team has their own deal with the commercial rights holders. But this is, there's a simplification of that. This is roughly how it works. Um, just under half of the profit, um, so about so 47.5%, that half is split in half. So you take that half and you split that mm-hmm. in half. Um, then one half of that half is split equally to the top 10 teams defined by uh, the results of the Constructors' Championship. So just to be clear, the Constructors' Championship is how well each team does with the points given out per Grand Prix. And after the end of all the Grand Prix in the season, the points for the two cars for each team get added up and uh, determine a ranking from 1 to 11 because there were 11 teams in this past year's championship. Right. So um, depending on where um, both cars finish depends on how many points the uh, constructor gets. And the points go from first place to 10th place. Um, So... Okay, so one half is split equally to the top 10 teams defined by the results of the Constructors' Championship. Then the other half is split between the top 10 from the previous season, from the previous year. 2015. Right. And then there are also three other separate pots called the Constructors' Championship bonus. And that is split between three teams, Ferrari, Red Bull, and McLaren. So that's a separate thing. Um... And then a small sum of 6.25 million pounds is given to each team just for being in the championship, just for competing in the F1 World Championship. But before, before any of what I just said happens, um, Ferrari receives a bonus just for being in F1, just for being in the championship because of the value their presence is perceived to give Formula 1 because, you know, they're a worldwide brand and everybody dreams of... Ferrari, <laughs> driving a Ferrari one day. Yeah, so it is a very, very complicated system. It's not the average pay per race that most races, like in the United States, for example, with NASCAR, IndyCar, most races are pay by race. This is not pay by race. Definitely. No, this is basically the teams have to wait throughout the whole season, which um, kind of puts each team's future up in the air because, you know, whereas a pay by race system teams kind of have some money stowed away to be able to you know they have something they're not completely deprived whereas in f1 um they basically have to see how they do the whole season so i mean they're kind of it's kind of they're kind of in the unknown there they're not in the clear so they have to wait the whole season so how did manners 2016 go well, it was doing they were they did pretty well. Um they uh they went into Q2 5 times. So, and that was at Austria, Spa, Belgium, the Belgian Grand Prix, Italy, Mexico, and Abu Dhabi. Um they outqualified uh one Sauber car. The times they outqualified one Sauber car in 2016 was 13. And the number of times Manor Racing outqualified both Sauber cars 
2016 was nine, and their reliability was very good. Um, they only had three retirements from 42 starts in 2016 due to technical problems, and they actually classified at the end of more races higher than um, their main competitors. So they classified in 32 races, Sauber, 31, McLaren, 31, and Haas, the new team, 30. So going back to the big scheme of things, uh, Manor was racing, Manor racing team was racing the Sauber F1 team for that 10th position in the constructor standings, that important 10th position. Right. How did that go throughout the season? Um, well, Pascal Verline, a uh, driver for Manor, he secured a points finish in Austria with 10th, so he got a point. He had a point for himself and then for the team. So the team was in 10th. And they pretty much had that spot the whole season uh, until the Brazilian Grand Prix. The penultimate round in the season. Right. The second to last race that kind of put Manor's future into question. Um, so in that race, um, Sauber driver Felipe Nasser had a great race. Um, he finished ninth in the Brazilian Grand Prix. So... He, by, by doing that, he secured two points for himself and two points for the constructors. So that moved Sauber into 10th place with two points over Manor with one point. So Manor got relegated to 11th. So that means no money from that extra pot. Right. Since they're not in the top 10, they're not going to get that equal division of money, So that, which is quite a big sum. So that really, really hurt them. So pretty unfortunate that that happened the penultimate race of the season. So Manor goes into bankruptcy. Um, my next question is, since Manor is considered that little team that could because of its minuscule budget compared to the hundreds of millions of the other teams, and since it was one of three new teams that started in 2010 season, the other two were the previously defunct Hispania team and Cater MF1 team. Now that it appears all three of those 2010 brand new teams have failed, the question must be asked, is F1 only profitable for the mega-rich companies and manufacturers? Um, I mean, that's a pretty, that's a great question, Noah. Um, I'm not sure if I can give you uh, a complete answer, but I think most of it just has to do with performance, you know? But that's kind of tied into the funding because to have a great car, you you need funding to be able to, to provide that. Um I think that you could say, I mean, look at Ferrari. They get they get a, a bunch of extra money, and that kind of takes away from other teams as well. So, I mean, it's tough for the backmarker teams, but there's hope for them because if they finish in the top 10, they get, they get that, 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 uh, they, they're in that pot of the equal division of the funds. But, yeah, it's very tough. And uh, Manor was the last team out of those three new teams. And then the emergence of the inclusion of Haas this year kind of hurt them as well. Because since there's 11 teams in the championship instead of just 10, they, they, they missed out on that, unfortunately. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Tristan, to explain why Manor Racing Team is in such financial trouble. Your, your explanation is really insightful, and I really appreciate you coming on the show, and I hope to have you back soon. Me too, Noah. It was a great talking to you. Um, great talking about motorsport. Thank you for having me. All right, that was Tristan Cortez, Speedway Sounds F1 analyst. Now on to our next topic, the Formula E sim race in Las Vegas. On Saturday, the Formula E championship broke new ground in the virtual reality of esports by hosting a 30-driver race 
at the Consumer Electronics Show, or CES. For those who don't know of Formula E, it is a three-year-old championship for 100% electric race cars. It travels around the world, and I had the good fortune of attending the E-Prix, that's what they call their races, in Long Beach last April. To promote itself as the most forward-thinking racing series, the series partnered with the R-Factor 2 PC Racing Simulator to create a special course through the Las Vegas Strip. Visa sponsored the event and helped to put up the biggest cash prize in e-racing, a $1 million purse with $200,000 going directly to the winner. Along with the 20 drivers who compete in the real cars, a competition was held to find the 10 fastest sim racers in the world. Each virtual driver was placed with one of the 10 real teams. In Super Bowl qualifying, sim racer Bono House earned the first grid spot and $25,000 in bonus money. Mahindra Racing's Felix Rosenquist put up the second fastest time and sim racer Alexi Usi qualified third. On to the race itself. I'll add my notes to the official commentary by Jack Nichols and Dario Franchitti. You'll now hear the audio from the highlights of the race. There go the green lights and away goes Bono Huist, hurtling down towards the first corner. He gets the best start. Alongside him as they come down towards the first turn is Felix Rosenquist going to be close enough to make a move. There comes a look up the inside from the Andretti car. They all squeeze through just about safely by the looks of things. It wasn't long before sim racers started taking way too many risks on the virtual circuit. But out across the line is Bono Huis, and he is sprinting away into the oh, wall, goes Patrick crash. Holtzman. Patrick Holtzman coming together, I think, with an Andretti and ending up in the barriers. That looks like it may be the end of the German driver's race, unfortunately for him. Look, here, here goes Holtzman, taps it back across in front of Da Costa. Yeah, Nothing Da Costa could do. Da Costa was completely innocent party there. And... and that was all at the very end of lap one. It was the end of the day for Andretti driver Antonio Felix Da Costa and sim racer Patrick Holtzman. Holzman hit the outside wall on the final corner, collecting DaCosta in the accident. On lap 10, more unnecessary risks were taken. Ruiz comes out again now to start lap 10 of 20. Here in the Visa Vegas E-Race, he is almost halfway to $200,000. Yeah, but you've got to finish it to get any of it. Yeah. <laughs> That's the key, right? I just want to see how he, how he does this. Oh, and look at this, three, three wide. wide, Graham Carroll, Alexi Ussi and David Greco, and they're all oh. off into the wall. Graham Carroll's on the inside, he's in front. Oh, and then Greco tries to turn in. Yeah. Alexi Yussi was there. Three, I'd love to see that again. I'd love to see, actually, the corner before to see what caused that. This I mean, is on board with Graham Carroll. So he's he thinks hit. he's made it. No, he's, been, he's already been clipped. The two behind collide yeah. and go spearing into him. And here's Graham Carroll. I absolutely commend Jack Nichols on his energy, even when the crash is only on a computer screen. Graham Carroll, David Greco, and Alexi Yussi collided entering the first chicane three wide a move that I think no driver would have attempted on a real track. After the mid-race pit stop, sim racer Bono House exited in front of Felix Rosenquist, but sim racer Ali Pakala seemed to leapfrog both of them. This gains seven tenths of a second on Bono Huis. Is this race on? Is the battle for $200,000 about to pick up? Bono Huis revving the engine. Both of them are. Who's going to be released first? Oh, the Mahindra was released first of Felix Rosenquist, but not quite enough. Well, they both make it out and through and out back onto the circuit. So Bono Huis, uh, well, Oli where's Oli Pakala? leading. Where's Oli Pakala in the other Mahindra? That is going to be the question. According to those timing screens, that timing tower on the left-hand side, he's managed to take the lead of the race. We will find him on the yeah, circuit. Yeah, he's leading. He's just gone through the sector one. He is leading the race. And at the checkered flag, Pakala was first, Bono House was second, and Felix Rosenquist was third. 
But as Nikki Shields will explain, the race was tainted by an unforeseen programming error. Well, just after the race, news broke that the stewards had discovered a technical issue which gave an unfair advantage to Oli Pakala, which means he's been given a 12-second time penalty, which moves him from first position into third, leaving Bono House the new champion of the Visa Vegas e-race. And there you have it, folks. Pakala, likely at no fault of his own, benefited from a computer glitch. It took several hours for the stewards of the e-race to come to that conclusion. Folks, I've raced on Forza Motorsport Online against other gamers in organized races before, and glitches are not an uncommon issue with video game races. I've even organized a few myself. Not at the scale of this race, of course. With Forza, R-Factor 2, and a lot of games, there's always the chance you will randomly disconnect from a race, or the whole game will crash. In my league, we equated it to a mechanical failure for the driver. Some games don't have all the modern safety rules you would see in a real race, so we would agree to a set of rules and procedures we have to enforce ourselves. But the outcomes of so many of these races have been determined by glitches that you would not see in the real world. So was it too early to organize an e-race with so much money on the line? Does the technology not yet work properly? At the moment, I recall the biggest issue with sim racing is overcomplicating the rules. Perhaps Formula E tried to simulate way too much for this one race. The cars, the pit stop procedure, and the track all seem to work fine. But the fan boost, or the ability for fans to give their favorite drivers an extra boost to use in the race, was apparently too much to program correctly. Somehow, Pakula's car was able to have fan boost for several laps instead of several seconds. It is not yet known whether this event will be held again next year, but if they do hold it again, it is critical that it runs smoothly if e-racing is to make a name for itself alongside other e-sports. Overall, it was a modest showing of what an e-race could be, and I look forward to the next real-world race in Buenos Aires. Just to clarify, the Formula E championship is a real championship with real cars. They just held a one-off computer game race and had a huge prize fund for it in Las Vegas. Also in Las Vegas at CES 2017, Los Angeles-based car manufacturer Faraday Feature debuted their competitor to Tesla, the FF91. Just like the Formula E race, it too was plagued with a major fault in the program. One of the most revolutionary features of the FF91 is the self-valet. It will park itself and drive itself to you when you request it through the smartphone app. But this dramatically failed when the car stopped on its own before entering the stage and had to be manually reset before it rolled out. There is always the risk that something will go wrong in a live reveal. Raphael Orlov of Jalopnik.com, in his article, Here's What Happened with Faraday's, Future failed, Faraday Future's Failed Self-Driving Demo, asked several experts from the company why this happened. For the, full, for the full answer, definitely check out that article. I'll post it on the Speedway Sounds Twitter and Facebook pages after the show. As for the car itself, it's fully electric, self-driving, self-parking, and has practically every feature that will define the future of luxury cars. But it also has a feature that will surprise you, 1,000 horsepower. It also has what many electric car drivers want, a long range of 370 miles. It is now clear that the automobile manufacturer's competition of the future is who can build the best electric, intelligent vehicle. Companies like Google, Tesla, and now Faraday Future seem to have a head start on the rest of the industry. Now on to two Californian new laws for 2017 for drivers. First I'll read off Assembly Bill, I believe it's 51, 
Existing law requires whenever a roadway has been divided into two or more clearly marked lanes for traffic in one direction that a vehicle be driven as nearly as practical entirely within a single lane and not be moved from the lane until the movement can be made with reasonable safety. This bill would define lane splitting as a driving a motorcycle that has two wheels in contact with the ground between rows of stopped or moving vehicles in the same lane as specified. The bill would authorize the Department of the California Highway Patrol to develop educational guidelines relating to lane splitting in a manner that would ensure the safety of the motorcyclists, drivers, and passengers as specified. The bill would require the department in developing these guidelines to consult with specified agencies and organizations with an interest in road safety and motorcyclist behavior. That was a lot of legalese. It all boils down to the idea that lane splitting, something all drivers have had to deal with over the years, is now an official legal term that can be regulated. Motorcyclists and bikers be sure to pay attention to new speed regulations so that you can stay safe while passing the cars around you. Next, Assembly Bill 1785 from Assemblyman Bill Quirk greatly restricts the ability to use your cell phone while driving. No longer are you allowed to check music, uh, have GPS within your hand. As long as the cell phone's within your hand, it is illegal now. You must have your cell phone mounted on the dashboard uh, with a mount that you can buy at a store now. Uh, and you can only uh, use your cell phone by swiping once or twice. Very limited function. So no, um, back in 2008, there was a law that you cannot hold your cell phone to your head while driving. And you can only use speakerphone. Then there was a law that banned texting while driving. But those two laws left a lot of loopholes for GPS, for music, etc. Now, with this new law, the loopholes have been closed. And that's all the time we have for on this week's Speedway Sounds. I'm Noah Stein, and I really appreciate you joining us, and have a great day. Music